Good morning, everybody. This is a cool passage of scripture, and as someone said to me when I told them I was preaching on it, they said, it's a little confusing at first reading. So I hope that you will understand this scripture when we're done by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I hope you will be excited about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's pray first. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for this morning that you have given. We thank you for this church where we can gather freely to get to know you. And Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that you would anoint us with your spirit, help our hearts to be clean before you, that we might hear what you are saying. And God, in the midst of a culture and a world that is so distracting, may we hear and may we know what this is all coming down to and get our hearts closer to you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you bring up the PowerPoint for me there. The message I've titled, The Coming Hour, because there is an hour that is coming according to Jesus. Amen? And it's an hour that is critically important. So what I want to start with is those of you who have heard me speak before know that one of my biggest pet peeves is an underestimate of heaven and an underestimate of hell. Okay? For example, this cartoon up on the screen... That's not what heaven is really like. But we're made to think that when we get to heaven, halos will float somewhere above our heads. We will suddenly turn into other creatures, sprout wings, become angels, float on clouds in a kind of white uh, existence, playing harps, even if we don't like playing harps, okay? This is what we believe. And so a lot of people are, quite frankly, they're not excited about going to heaven because this is not what heaven is really like. Heaven is reality, as we're going to talk about. Heaven is going to be experienced in our real and actual bodies, in a real heaven, and a new heaven, and a new earth. This also is not hell. Okay, I found this cartoon in a May edition of the Tribune Review, and we don't need to read everything that it says, but basically what I want to show you is, if you look at this cartoon and you see that podium, and you see the devil standing behind the podium with a pitchfork, You get the feeling that most people think, for example, that the devil is in charge of hell. Misconception number one, the devil is not in charge of hell. In actuality, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. He will be punished there. Uh, Also, we don't get a choice of what our punishment will be. Uh, You know, you can't get out of it. And I've written a devotion on this called Misconceptions About Hell on my website, but I want to start with this because an underestimate of heaven and an underestimate of hell is a problem within the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, we're going to go straight to Jesus and hear what he has to say about the coming hour and our destination. Because what he has to say is most important. Correct? The Bible says in Revelation 1-5 that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Now, the word faithful there means true. He is the firm witness. And I love that he's called the witness, because if you want somebody to be called as a witness on your behalf in a court of law, you want two things. Number one, you want somebody who will actually be motivated to tell the truth, correct? And not everybody wants to tell the truth, but since Jesus is God, he always tells the truth. Number two, even if somebody wanted to tell the truth, they would have had to have been there to experience the facts in order to report them, right? So when I think about heaven and hell and my eternal destination, I want to hear it from somebody who's been there. How many of you know that Jesus has been to death and back? 
According to Revelation 1.18, he holds the keys of death and Hades. He said, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. So he, as the creator of the universe, was there before time began. He's been existing throughout all of history. He's already in the future. We can count on what he has to say about our eternal destiny, right? So that's who we're going to go to. We're going to go to Jesus Christ, and we're going to pick it up in John chapter 5, verse 25, this little section of Scripture. Jesus says some really important things here, which can be confusing at the outset. It looks like he's saying two different things almost. So we want to break this down and see what's happening. In John 5:25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Let's take this piece by piece and go, first of all, with the fact that he says, Truly, truly. In the King James Version, it says, verily, verily. You've ever heard Jesus say that before? It's like he's prefacing the statement to make you know this is the truth. It's as if he understands that in our hearts we would think, ah, is this really important? Is this really true? And Jesus is saying, truly, truly, you need to understand something. He says, an hour is coming. Now, the word for hour here can be used in different contexts. Hour can mean a fixed season, a regular season. For example, autumn turns to winter and winter turns to spring. Does anybody ever doubt that that's going to happen? Do you ever doubt that nighttime is going to turn to daytime? You can look it up in your Bible, Genesis 8.22, Jeremiah 31.35. The fixed order of the seasons and the sun are because of Jesus Christ. So that is an hour. He, he has things fixed and moving on his time scale. The word hour can also be used to represent daylight. It can be used to represent 124th of the day cycle. But the word hour can also be used to mean a fixed and specified point of time. And so I believe what Jesus is trying to tell us is, if you rely on me For night to turn to day and season to turn to season, you can be assured that there is an hour coming. Amen, church? There's an hour coming for sure. Now, this is interesting because he says this hour is coming, but yet it's also now here. It gets a little confusing, doesn't it? An hour is coming, but it's already here. But this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. And we can't wrap our minds completely around it. But when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he said, you better repent for the kingdom of God is what? What did he say? At hand. All right. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. So when he came to this earth, what he did was he started throwing demons out of people's lives. Right. He started telling demons what to do. He started healing people's bodies. He started forgiving people of sins. Now, he didn't take over the whole universe when he came the first time, but he came and he started showing us what the kingdom of God looked like. He said the kingdom of God has entered, but it's not quite fully here. And this is the tension that we're dealing with in this scripture. Jesus wants you to know an hour is coming. Oh, you can count on it. And it's already in some sense here. And he's going to explain to us what he means by that. It's both in the future and it's now. Are you happy for that? I'm happy that the hour has already come and changed my life. But I am super happy that this isn't the end of it all. Amen? Okay? So an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, the dead. Now, he's going to talk two times about dead people. But this first time, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. 
The Bible's very clear in Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Watch this. Even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses. It is very possible for people who are biologically alive to be walking around this earth spiritually dead. I believe that's why we're so obsessed with zombies and Night of the Living Dead. Because in all honesty, many people are zombies. We're walking around and our hearts are beating, but there are people who are spiritually dead on the inside. You have no life with Christ, no eternal life that's going to continue on past this. So God says there are people who are dead in their trespasses. And when that happens, how we are made alive by God is with Christ. So as we go back to the scripture here, I believe this part, scholars would tell you, in this part, Jesus is talking about the spiritually dead. He says now, right now is the hour when spiritually dead people can hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, you've got to know that this is truth. And if you have people that are unsaved in your life, you need to hold on to this promise, right? Because dead people can hear the voice of the Son of God and be alive now, this minute. Amen? We can come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. One time, many, many years ago, and many times since then, I heard the voice of the Son of God speak to me. Have you ever heard that? He speaks to us in many ways. And the the primary way that he speaks is through this book. So this morning, right now, you are hearing the voice of the Son of God. And when you respond to Jesus Christ and his voice, the dead live. And you can get spiritual life. So Jesus says right now there's an opportunity for you to hear the voice of the Son of God. And if you hear, you will live. Now, just like you can be biologically alive and spiritually dead... You can have sound waves enter your eardrum, and you can process it in your brain, but never take it into your heart. You get me? Jesus said many people have ears, but they don't hear. So you have to actually hear the voice of the Son of God. You can't just know it mentally. You have to react to it. And if you hear the voice of the Son of God, you will live. Now, a lot of people have taken this scripture. A lot of people have thought about God and said, man, my life is such a mess. I am so dead inside. I am so guilty. I am so lost. How could God ever make true eternal life out of this mess? And I want to remind you that the Bible says in the book of Romans that God is the one who gives life to the dead. I love this. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. You remember Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did he create it out of? Absolutely Nothing. And God says in the same way that he made everything out of nothing, he can take the darkest, most lost, most empty heart, and he can call into existence life in a human heart. Isn't that beautiful? And so we trust him to bring life. Now, secondly, Jesus goes on after that verse, and he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. I want to tell you something. There is no creature in this world who has life in and of itself except for God. Amen. We all live and breathe, and all animals and plants live and breathe. Those things happen because God created us and he is sustaining us. Our life is in his hands. But do you know that nobody gave God life? It can hardly fit in your brain, but nobody gave God life. And so Jesus is saying... The Father and I, we have life in ourselves, and we can give life to other people. Then he goes on to say, now this is, this is a scary scripture. 
He's given us a lot of good news. We can hear the voice of the Son of God. The dead can live. They can be forgiven. But then Jesus says these sobering words. He says, and the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, sadly, this is the part that the culture and the church of Jesus Christ at large has lost in our day and age. How many people ever talk about the fact that Jesus not only came to bring salvation, but he is also the one appointed to execute judgment? Do you hear about that very much? This is what the Bible says, and I'm here to tell you the truth. Jesus said, I have also been given authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. Now, in the verse before this, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. Now he switches the term and calls himself the Son of Man when it has to do with his right to judge us. And he will execute judgment. Every human being who has ever lived and ever will live will stand before the throne of God and be judged. Now he says, I'm able to do this because I am the Son of Man. So what does that term mean, the Son of Man? And why does Jesus use it of himself? Well, two of the two terms that Jesus uses of himself are Son of God and Son of Man. All right? These are two things that both refer to Jesus, and they both have significance. First of all, when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we're referring to his messianic mission. Now, you've certainly heard the word Messiah. Messiah is a word that's translated in our Bibles as Christ, Christos in the Greek. And it literally means the anointed one. The King, God the Father, has anointed Jesus the Son. He is His King, all right, sent to earth. So when we talk about the Son of God, that's exactly what we mean. Jesus is fully God, 100% God. But then there's this term, the Son of Man. And when we speak of Jesus as the Son of Man, we're emphasizing His full humanness. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. We can't wrap our minds around it, but we accept it as it's revealed in the Word of God. Now, this term, the Son of Man, is an interesting term because it happens to be Jesus' favorite designation for Himself. He used this term about himself more than any other. This term is used over 80 times in the New Testament, and except for four or five times, it is always used by Jesus to name himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, uh, you know, in my humanness, I would want to walk around and say, hey, look at me, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. But he doesn't do that. When he walks around, he usually talks about himself as the son of Man, isn't that beautiful? Because he wants to identify with us. He wants to emphasize, I came, I put on flesh to stand in your place, to know what you feel, to be able to strengthen and help you. So he loves this term for himself, the Son of Man. Now this term is also used in the Old Testament, and except in the book of Ezekiel where it's used to identify the prophet, it is usually used as a symbol for simple human beings in the Old Testament to talk about humanity. For example, in Psalm chapter 8, King David is writing a psalm. Now, remember, King David didn't have the Hubble Space Telescope in his day. He didn't even have a set of good binoculars. But David was able to look up into the sky at night and see the stars and see the moon and see the heavens and able to recognize, man, this world is really, really big. And when he looked up and saw that, here's what King David said. He said, God, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the sun and the moon and the stars that you have set in place. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? Isn't that a logical question when you think about the bigness of the universe? I don't know how many of you studied astronomy or even think about how big the universe is. But when you look at it, you think of how tiny the earth is and how little we are. We might want to go to God and ask the question, you know, what is a human being that you even think about us? That you even care about one particular human? Has anybody ever prayed and thought, does God actually hear me because I'm just one person out of billions and billions in this big world? So David was asking that question. Now, it's a good question to ask. And and as a matter of fact, in 1990... We sent uh, the Voyager 1 out into space to take pictures of the Earth from beyond Pluto. In 1990, Voyager 1 went 400 billion miles beyond the Earth, beyond Pluto, and took pictures of the Earth. It took five and a half hours for every one of the 640,000 pixels to get back here, is how far away this picture was taken. When the picture came back, it's very famous. Here's what it looked like. And that little white speck in that blue circle, that tiny white fleck, that's the earth caught in a sunbeam, a picture from beyond Pluto. Now, that's only a picture from beyond Pluto in our solar system. Can you imagine? The earth wouldn't even show up if we got to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, right? And there are billions of galaxies. So David was right in asking a question, what is a human being on that tiny little speck that you would care for us? And famous people like, anybody ever heard of Carl Sagan, the famous atheist? After this picture came back, he made this statement which went worldwide. Here's what he said. He said, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of light. Okay? That's what an atheist came back and said. Do you know God says exactly the opposite? He says, yeah, the universe is really, really big to show you how glorious and great and big I am. But your smallness, I totally identify with. We are so important. You need to look at that little fleck up there. Can you imagine that God who made this whole universe decided to come down and pinpoint himself on that little speck and become a human to identify with us? So David came back with a much different answer. He said, it doesn't make us not important. Here's what it is. Here's what the Bible says. David said, yet about human beings, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Yeah, we're that little speck. But God, you have made us just a little lower than yourself. And then David went on to say, you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. In Genesis 1.28, we were commanded to take dominion of the universe that God has made. We were supposed to be His kings and queens to rule and reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, everything. And do you know, because of our sinfulness, instead of us taking dominion over these things, sin has taken dominion over us. But we were meant to rule over God's creation under God's command. And i got to tell you something right now. If you think heaven is boring... You wrong, because that's what we're going to do again someday. Amen? God came to restore this. I'm going to show you something. Remember, David's using the term son of man, and he's using it simply in terms of humanity. But God shows us that this has to do with Jesus when the writer of Hebrews, 1,000 years after David penned those words, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote that scripture and tell us what it's really about. 
And when he quotes that scripture, he's going to show us that what the Bible presented as being about all of humans, which is true, we're all made a little bit lower than God, made to rule and to reign. He's going to show us that what is about all human beings really got pinpointed onto the God-man, Jesus Christ. He came and become one of us so that he could take that destiny and give it back to each and every one of us. Now watch this. The writer of Hebrews says this. And I love the writer of Hebrews because he's like, how many of you are like this? You want to quote a scripture, but you don't know where it's at. You're like, hey, the verse that says, for God so loved the world, I don't know where. I love this. This is what the writer of Hebrews does. He goes, hey, it's been testified somewhere. I don't know the chapter and the verse. I love that. It's been testified somewhere. All right. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? So he's quoting Psalm 8. He says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So far, this is talking about human beings, quoting Psalm chapter 8. Then, all of a sudden, you sense a little change. And you get to realize this is talking about something more than just a person. Watch this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, wait a second. We were meant to rule and reign over the universe under God's sovereignty. But not everything is in our control. Amen? So you start to get a hint about something. And then it says, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Now watch this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely who? Jesus. So now you get it. Now you're like, wait a second. What applied to all the sons of men is now applying specifically to Jesus. And he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So now we see what applied to all humans. God is narrowing down and saying, I'm going to send my son, God himself, in the flesh to be a son of man, to stand in your place, to die for your sins, so that someday when you die, you can rule and reign like you were originally supposed to do. Is that glorious? And that is why Jesus is called the son of man. He's the God man, but he's one of us. He identified with us. Hebrews says, God brought many sons and daughters back to their glorious state through him. So I want to go back. When we think of that term, son of man, it's very meaningful. It has to do with his identification with us to restore us to what we were meant to be. The son of man is a term that reminds us, number one, that when Jesus came the first time, he came to suffer. He came to die, to stand in our place. Jesus used this term of himself, okay? Here it is, the son of man. There you see that term. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days rise again. But I want to tell you something, and this is the part I really want you to hold on to. The Son of Man came to suffer the first time. But as sure as I'm standing in front of you this morning, the second time He comes, it will be in His glory. Watch this. The Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. The hour has already come that He came to suffer and that you can hear His voice and be alive spiritually. The hour is yet to come when he sits on that glorious throne and we will be judged by him. So let's finish this up in verses 28 and 29. Verse 25, 
The dead spiritually will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Now in verse 28, he gets very curious here. Jesus says, do not marvel at this. I have been struck with that phrase and couldn't get out of my head for a couple weeks because there are many things that we should marvel at, that we should be in wonder of. There are many things that should shake us up and be like, whoa, did that just really happen? You know? For example, in the Bible, uh, God's, the Bible says that the disciples marveled at Jesus calming the storm. Was that something to marvel at? He told the wind and waves to stop, and they did. The Bible says that the crowds marveled when a demon was cast out of a person. The Bible says that Peter marveled when the tomb was empty. That's something to marvel at. That the crowds marveled when believers began to speak in other tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are things that you step back and say, hey, that's something to wonder at, isn't it? But do you know what, curiously, God says? Here are some things you shouldn't be in wonderment about. Here are some things that are be, should be so ingrained into your heart that you should not marvel at them as Christians. And yet we still do. He said, don't marvel that you have to be born again. You're a mess. You need born again, right? He said, don't marvel that the world's going to hate you for being a Christian. Do any of us still marvel at that? You ever feel rejected and you're like, I can't believe this. Jesus said, don't marvel at that. But get that down in your heart. You're going to be rejected as a Christian. But do you know what else he says not to marvel at? And this is very convicting. We should so be convinced of this and walk around with this truth in our heart in everyday life that it should never put us in wonderment. You ready? We should not marvel and be totally expecting this fact. Dead bodies are going to come out of their tombs when Jesus tells them to. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said, do not marvel at this. Quit being so shocked by this. Get this as part of your everyday life. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, not just the dead, but everyone who's in their tomb is going to hear his voice and everyone's going to come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I'm not going to go off into another sermon on this, but just suffice it to say, you are not saved because you do good or damned because you do evil. Okay, people who do good are those who've already been born again and goodness comes from your life now. And those who do evil are those who've pushed back Jesus and refused to hear the voice of the Son of God. Okay, but suffice it to say, let's look at this. Jesus said, don't be surprised by this. An hour is coming when everyone in their tombs will hear his voice. So I wanted to put in uh, my mathematical mind, wanted to put this in two columns for you. In verse 25, Jesus talks about the voice going out to the spiritually dead. In verse 28, his voice goes out to the physically dead. So let's contrast those two hours. The hour that is now here and the hour that's coming. In John 5:25, Jesus said, truly, truly. In other words, you can count on this. This is the truth. In John 5:28, he said, hey, Christians, quit marveling at this. Have this so ingrained in your everyday life that you expect it, right? In John 5:25, he said, the hour is coming and is now here. See, right now in this sanctuary today and around the world, people who hear the voice of the Son of God can come alive spiritually. Amen? Those miracles are happening now. In 528, Jesus says an hour is coming. He doesn't say it's here yet because it isn't here yet. He showed us uh, little, little signs of it when he raised Lazarus from the tomb and, and raised other people from the, from the dead. But he didn't show us in fullness yet. In 525, he said the dead will hear. And there are dead people walking around the earth all the time, spiritually dead. In 528, he said all who are in the 
Tombs will hear. So he's very specific. He's talking about physical death in 28. Now watch this. Both will hear the voice of Jesus. Don't you love that? The voice of Jesus is the only thing to which we can respond. Now watch this. In 525, those who hear will live. In 528, everyone who hears his voice is going to come out. But the problem is they're going to come out to different destinations. And this is the end of my message, but this is the most sobering part, so I want you to really focus on this. Here's what he said. He said, some will come out to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. Now, I would not be a woman called by God to preach his word unless I preached the whole truth, right? And I want to tell you something. There's coming a day when the dead and the living will hear the voice of the Son of God. And these are actually biblically probably two different time periods, two different days. But there's coming a day in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 when the dead in Christ will hear the voice of the Son of God and saved people's bodies are going to come out of the graves and they're going to rise. Amen? And they're going to rise to eternal life. Real body is going to come back together. You're going to be in heaven with your real body. I'll be able to hug you in heaven. Amen? We'll have these bodies. You'll know me. We'll be walking around in real life because when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a real body and he told his disciples, touch me, feel me, eat some bread and fish with me. Amen? Who's going to be eating shrimp with me in heaven? Okay, we're going to eat. These are real bodies we're going to get. Some will be resurrected to life, but I'm here to tell you something right now. Some will be resurrected to judgment. And this is one of the most awful statements in the Bible. Can you imagine? Some, their bodies will be brought back to life to die forever. Listen, people in heaven will have their bodies and people in hell will have their bodies. Everyone's coming out of the tomb. You will stand before Jesus. You will have your body back. People say, Shelley, is, is, is hell like literal? Is it physical or is it just spiritual? I think it's both. When Jesus said you're going to gnash your teeth there, yes, I think that's a metaphor because when, when you gnash your teeth, you're like... Your regret, your deep regret, your sorrow that you didn't respond to hear the voice of the Son of God. You'll carry your guilt on your head forever. Yes, that's spiritual and that's emotional. Has anybody ever felt guilt? You imagine having that forever with no hope? But is it physical? Yes, I believe it's physical because Jesus made us physical. And He's going to resurrect our bodies out of the tomb whether they go to heaven or whether they go to hell. You can count on it. Some people will be resurrected to eternal life and some people will be resurrected to die And be tormented forever. That's what Jesus said. Daniel chapter 2 was an allusion to this. 12.2. Watch this. The prophet Daniel said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to everlasting shame and contempt. Do you see the contrast there? You either get everlasting life or everlasting shame and contempt. Do you know... What an awful thing it is to stand before people and be ashamed. You ever been ashamed? I've stood many times and I've stood in my shame. You will be resurrected to a time when all you will feel is the shame of your rejection of the voice of the Son of God. And your sin will be on your head. Everlasting shame. Everlasting reproach. Everlasting contempt. So here's the advice of Jesus to you. That hour is coming. Everyone will face it. But the hour to hear the voice of the Son of God and live is right now. Amen? Amen. Hear the voice of the Son of God and live now. 
Because you will hear his voice when your body lays in the tomb. And you will come out to the resurrection of life or to the resurrection of judgment. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And I just pray that your word be planted deep in our hearts, that that seed go in, Father, and that as you promise, your word would not return void. We love you. I love your people, Lord. And we need to function by the truth. So we thank you for the hope that you've given and for the opportunity that you've given. The hour is now 